Welcome to the Smarter Trading Podcast. If you want to sharpen your trading skills or become a more savvy investor, then you're in the right place. Every week, we sit down with professional traders who are ready to share practical insights on what it takes to succeed in modern day markets. Smarter Trading, the show to watch to trade smarter. Kevin Medeiros is the founder and CEO of The Trade Risk. All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Evan or The Trade Risk. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Evan and guests may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, everybody. Our guest today is Sean McLaughlin, a.k.a. Chicago Sean on social media. Sean is the chief options strategist for All Star Charts and senior market strategist at Trade Ideas. He's been trading for over 20 years, starting out as a prop trader during the late 90s, founded a hedge fund shortly thereafter, and since transitioned primarily to trading options. In this episode, we talk about the tech boom of the 1990s, some of the bad habits Sean picked up during those years, and also some of the similarities between those markets and present day. We then geek out on options and discuss Sean's framework for placing trades, how equity traders can start using options in their own strategies, gamma squeezes, and a whole lot more. Please enjoy this conversation with my friend, Sean McLaughlin. You've had a lot of different industry experience and I do want to talk about some of it, but I want to start with your role at StockTwits. So for any of you guys who got muted, banned, or kicked off the platform from the years 2010 to 20, what, 17, this is your guy right here that probably did it to you. Oh, no, I don't think that's not fair. That's not fair. That's not entirely true. I mean, yes, I certainly did a bunch of that, but I wasn't the only one. It wasn't all on me. There was it a was team. a team effort. Yeah, there you go. Um no, I mean, all kidding aside, though, I mean, that on one hand must have been a hilarious role, like uh, just an awesome role to be in. But then the other hand, probably like losing losing hope in, in humanity, like trying to moderate, you know, anonymous social accounts. What like are, are there still like stories that you that you can that you can share that you recall from like any of the craziness that happened there, like pump and dump bots or like anything else that was like going on? Like, was it that uh, bad or not that bad? I wouldn't say that any part of that job was fun. Um, there are certainly some hilarious episodes of weird people doing weird things that uh, that we had to kick off the platform um, some persistent bad people, but really it was all just about, you know, we wanted to have people who wanted to be there and add value and be nice to each other and, and, and have healthy debate and, uh, uh, so that we can all benefit. And, uh, you know, you, you always have people, money, money brings, it brings in bad emotions on, in some people. And, uh, when markets get whippy and, uh, uh, money's on the line, people are losing money, uh, Sometimes people have a short fuse and it's very easy to have a short fuse on social media when you're being anonymous. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, we had to deal with some bad actors. I think we did a pretty good job of, of getting rid of most of the bad actors. But, uh, you know, it, it's a job that's, that's uh, you can never win that game. Um, all you can do is uh, all you can do is hope to contain it. Uh, but that was uh, uh, that was only a small part of what I did at, at Stocktwits and certainly not the fun part. But uh, but we. <laughs> We had some some interesting characters, that's for sure. Do you think like anything from that role 
that really sort of helped you from a trading perspective or like any, any from the psychological, you know, just seeing the, 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 the strong opinions on both sides. Did you, you know, is there any like insights that you could glean from just market dynamics that, that you took away from that role? Well, as far as market dynamics goes, it was fairly obvious to me and to most of us who work there that message volume and the intensity of messaging would tend to peak at market turns on, on the upside and the downside. Um, so it was kind of like when, when, when messaging was slow and there wasn't a whole lot of people talking about anything, uh, the markets were generally going choppy and going sideways and being directionless. And, uh, and then when market conversation would crescendo, uh, let's say we were in a down market, um, and we've been down for two or three or four days in a row. And then all of a sudden the message volume gets really crazy. I mean, it corresponds pretty well to trading volume, right? Trading volume tends to peak at turning points and, uh, message volume, uh, did, did the same. It was a, it's a pretty strong correlation. I've heard you, uh, do some interviews in the past and and I've heard you say that, you know, you've been trading for over 20 years and you've spent the majority of that time unlearning the first few years of when you started to get into markets. And I know it's on, you know, a slight exaggeration to some extent, but I know there's real sort of, you know, there's real truth to that. So what were some of those habits you have been trying to unlearn, you know, over these past years? Sure. Well, when I started in 1998, it was the beginning of the last final push of the internet dot com bubble that uh, that peaked in April of 2000. For those of you who are relatively new to markets, um, and during that period of time, coming into the market, I worked in an office with 40 other traders. Uh, we were all in our 20s. All of us had no trading experience whatsoever, no Wall Street experience. I think one guy maybe worked at a at a brokerage firm once, uh, but the rest of us, I mean, we were just schmucks off the street, more or less. And so we didn't know what we were doing. And so when we all started trading around the same time in 1998, we were learning with what we had in front of us, uh, with the market that was given to us. And we were learning from each other and sharing notes and comparing notes and going out for drinks after work every day and just, you know, talking about what we did throughout the day. And what we found, and, you know, I have this with the benefit of hindsight, of course, is that the market that we were in from 98 to 2001, which by the way, I should point out, a lot of guys in my office made a lot of money. And again, these were all market newbies. Uh, I was kind of the low man on the totem pole making 20, 30, 40, 50 grand a month at one point, which is great money even today. But on the scale of what the rest of the guys in my office are doing, they were killing it. I mean, we had 22-year-old kids bringing down half a million a month. I mean, it was just, it was insanity. Um, anyway, going back to the bad habits that I learned and, and that we all learned during that time is, is we learned some things like, uh, you know, buying the dip and buying every dip and holding on because it'll always come back and it always did. And we, and that's just one example. I mean, there were several examples like that, but just all these little tricks that we, that we learned that did really, really, really well, obviously during that time, if you judge by how much money everybody made, but when the, when the market bottomed out after it peaked, I mean, in, in fact, I could tell you that the, the most money was made in my office as the market was selling off. So from April of 2000, 
through maybe April of 2001 for a good 12 months. I mean, everybody in my office was cleaning up. We were just crushing it on the short side. But once the bottom kind of started setting in, I think the, the I think the final bottom was in uh, early 2003, if I remember my history. Uh, but in that time period, around 2002, 2003, uh, a number of things conspired against us. Number one, the market returned to normal, whatever that was. To us, 98 to 03, the, the bubble peak and bust, that was normal. We thought that was normal. That's all we knew. Um, little did we know that that was an unprecedented four-year period in the markets that we've never seen anything like that since. I mean, we've seen small examples of that, certainly in the Bitcoin space right now, but it was affected far more of the universe of investable assets in the late 90s. Um, and so uh, the market changed back to, to the real normal. <laughs> uh, a couple other things that changed, uh, the way uh, the NASDAQ, which is what we all traded primarily, uh, changed the way that they handle uh, level two. Like So the level two, uh, for those of you who don't know, if I'm speaking inside baseball here, uh, basically shows all the bids and all the asks and all the different prices uh, in the market. And right now, a level two basically shows you a handful of exchanges, you know, uh, Instanet, Arca. I don't, I don't even know what they are anymore because it doesn't really matter because they all price the same. They all move exactly the same. They're all controlled by robots or by algorithms. But in the 90s, back then, you actually saw who the people were on the bid and ask. You saw Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns. You saw all the players, who they were and their actual size of how much they were bidding and asking. And that was real important and real useful information for a trader. And we use that to, we could identify who was the big buyer in the market. If Merrill Lynch was on the bid, they were scooping up everything that anybody was selling. So if you saw them on the bid, you wanted to be buying with them because you know that they were working in order to fill a million shares of something. So you had somebody you knew you could sell to if you had to. Um, that went away at some point in the early 2000s after the bear, uh, after the bear market bottomed out. And that was another tool that we had used that we could no longer rely on anymore. So those are two main things that really changed that, um, that the skills that we learned to, to interpret that tape and, and to, and to, uh, uh, how to manage our orders and how to buy dips and how to add to losers, like all that stuff that worked for so long didn't work anymore. And uh, so that's kind of what I talk about, Evan, when I talk about how, you know, the, the, the things I learned in the first, first four years of my trading career, I, I've spent the rest of my career trying to unlearn all those habits because they became habits, right? I mean, uh, the, the other thing I should say is during that time, we were trading like crazy. I mean, we were doing hundreds of thousands of shares every day, uh, you know, across, you know, 20 to 50 different names every day. I mean, it was just so much trading. It was just constantly banging keys and, and, and getting into trades. And, and so having done that much volume in so short a period of time, things become habits, right? You learn to do things. It becomes second nature. And uh, unfortunately, none of, none of those skills work anymore. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, it, in the back of your head, are you like even, so we're recording this in May of 2021. I mean, there's been a large influx of retail traders in the past 12 months that have seen us, you know, seen the world go through this, this lockdown, this, this virus. And, and meanwhile, markets are just racing to new highs. We've got GameStop and the socialization of trading and crypto. Like, does this 
feel to you as someone who came into the 90s? Is, does it feel like that? Or are we just connected so much more and it's it's not like it was back in the 90s? Well, there are some similarities. So the the moves that we're seeing in certain stocks, like you, know, you mentioned GameStop, that's one of them. Um, some of the stocks that we've seen that have been related to, like say the blockchain, uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, we have seen pockets of really insane moves. We've seen some short squeezes that have been pretty, pretty impressive. Those echo the types of moves that we saw in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. The difference is that in the late 90s, 2000s, you had 400 stocks that were moving like that on a daily mm. basis. I mean, we had Qualcomm. that was a $400 stock. They would move 50 bucks intraday every day. And that, that was a vehicle that a lot of us traded. Um Stocks like Yahoo and eBay, that those times those are like three, four hundred dollar stocks that have hundred point moves every day. Um, and I mean, I could go on and on. There were a hundred of stocks like that. Um, and I mean, the whole universe uh, of stocks was, was just trading all over the place. I mean, basically, the only stocks we didn't trade were like the Dow 30 because they, they seemed very boring in, in, in comparison. Uh, so we have seen examples in individual names today that have moved like stocks did back then, but just not the, the breadth of, of that. We were just seeing that so many different places. I mean, you could throw a dart at a board and, and, and a stock has a you know twelve percent move intraday every day. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense. So one of the things that I I love about your writing and the work you put out there is that you are very open and honest about. Not, I mean, not only your trading, but just this business in general. Like you are a calming sort of center of gravity to know, you know, to even say things like I've heard you say that you know you've had losing months. And a losing year. And like, that is, I mean, that's normal, right? Like we, we, we get that like for a professional that's been doing that, but that is like blasphemy for anyone, you know, starting out now. I mean, a losing month, let alone a year is not in the vocabulary of someone that is racing to buy Dogecoin or, you know, any of these other things. Is that like, can we teach that to them? Like, is, is it teachable? I mean, we can say it, but like, do you have to learn that yourself? You know what I mean? And, and go through that rite of passage as, as a new trader? Yeah. I mean, look, the unpopular thing that I tell people is that trading is hard. It's really hard. And anyone that comes to me who's never traded before or who is very new at it and says to me, I want to make a living as a trader. First thing I say is, that's cool. Second thing I say is, don't quit your day job. Because this game, and it is a game, Evan, and you know that. I mean, we don't like to think of it in game terms. It makes it sound simplistic, but I mean, it is a game and it's hard. And you hear that stat thrown around that 90% of traders lose money. I mean, there's truth to that stat. There is, uh, that is the truth. Um, and the majority of people who attempt to make a living at trading cannot make a living at trading. Um, it's, it's kind of like an ironic thing that like the act of trading, you know, buying and selling, identifying chart patterns, finding the fundamentals that you like to trade on. When it comes down to it, that kind of stuff is actually pretty easy. The mechanics of trading is pretty easy. And there might be some people that argue with me on that point, and that's fine. But trading really is easy. But what's hard is everything inside here in your brain. Everything in your brain conspires against you 
to make it hard, make it harder than it needs to be. We always overcomplicate things. Uh, we bail on our positions at the worst time because we get scared or we get greedy. Um, the, the, the mental game, the inner game of trading is, is where the rubber meets the road. And most people, sadly to say, are not cut out for it. Uh, you know, so many people, and I'm, by the way, I've been very guilty of this throughout my career is that so many people come at this saying, okay, I want to make 500 bucks a day, or I want to make two grand a month. Like that's my, that's my number. And they treat trading as something where, okay, I'm just going to make the same amount of money every day. That's my goal. And then, you know, then everything's going to be good. And uh, someone smarter than me said, the market's not an annuity. You know, it's not just going to give you what you need every day. Most successful traders who make, who actually do make a living at this game, their income is very lumpy. They might make 20 grand this month and might make nothing for six months. And then they make 80 grand in one month. I mean, it can be all over the place. And if you are not good outside of trading at budgeting, managing your finances, staying out of debt, uh, keeping your lifestyle in check, if you're not good at that stuff, I don't care how good you are at trading, it's not going to work for you. There's just too much working against you. So, um, it's a hard game, man. And I can tell you and I tell everybody this. I'm not ashamed to say it. Uh, there have been a number of times in my career over 23 years where trading was my only source of income. Uh, and I can tell you almost with 100% correlation, whenever trading was my only source of income, that is without a doubt whenever I've done the worst at trading. And it's mm. totally a mental game. It's a mental thing for me. I know what I'm supposed to do theoretically. I know the buttons to press and I know the strategies to use and I know when to buy and know when to sell. But there's something in my brain that when everything's riding on it, like I, my rent doesn't get paid if I don't make money this month, I short circuit myself at every turn. And so I have learned the hard way that for me to be successful at trading, Trading has to be additional income. It can't be my main source of income. I have to have income coming in from other places that that I, at least I know that my bills are getting paid. I'm putting a little money away in savings, saving for retirement. And my health care is taken care of. I need all that stuff before I can start trading because otherwise it's it's trouble. And you know that, that's not a sexy story and that's not going to sell subscriptions. Uh, but the, the cold reality is, is that if you want to make a living as a day trader or any kind of trader, it's hard. I'm not saying you can't do it. And I know people who do, but your first goal should be to just come on in and make a little extra money, you know, learn the, the practice, learn the processes, get, uh, get, um, you know, a workflow down that works for you and make that work small, you know, make a couple hundred bucks here and there, make a thousand bucks a month, you know, string that together and get more consistent with that. Make that your goal. And all of a sudden, if you look back after a year and say, oh, wow, I've made enough money that I don't need to work anymore. Okay. Then you have that conversation, but don't make it your goal right out of the gate. That's just, you know, you're setting yourself up for frustration and, and trading's hard enough. It's frustrating enough. You don't need to add more frustrations on top of it. Yeah, it's such good advice. I love it. Um, I agree with everything, uh, everything that you said there. And yeah, I mean, there's so many thoughts going through my head, but I mean, you know, one of the things too with trying to trade for a living or these traders that want to start off and, and just make their entire living through trading is account size is a huge thing too. And I mean, 
not that I think a, a new trader should have a large account size. That sounds super scary to me, but it is just much easier to, you know, make a, a $75,000 salary if you have a half a million dollars than it is if you have 50 grand. And unfortunately, most people are starting with little money and they want to, you know, they need a hundred percent return. And it's just like, oh right. God. And think about that math. If you have a 50 grand account and you need to make 50 grand a year, I mean, it's kind of tough to make, to make, to, to make a living on 50 grand a year these days. But, but if that's what you need to make and you're trading with a 50 grand account, you got to make a hundred grand just to, to end up breaking even at the end of the year, if you've taken out your living expenses. I mean, if you're making a hundred grand every year, you are the rock star of trading. I mean, you are, there's nobody better than you. And you think you're going to come into this game with 50 grand and be the best trader in the world? I'm sorry. It's just, it's not going to work that way. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I will gladly wire you my money if, if you can consistently, you know, make a hundred grand a year on that, on that base income. So yeah, I a hundred percent agree. So you, you know, your trading style, I mean, you, you used to intraday scalp, you used to trade stocks, you used to trend follow, manage futures. Um, now you're an options trader. Why? And I know you probably do all those other things still, like, um, you know, from time to time, but you primarily consider yourself an options trader. So why, why did you settle there? Why is that sort of your bread and butter nowadays? I don't know if I could point to one particular reason why I settled on options, but I could tell you that um, I'd always kind of tinkered with options, even from the beginning. Um, I think one of the first trading books that I had ever read or first books that kind of got me interested in trading as like a thing to do was I read a book by, uh, what was the guy's name? He was a prolific author at the time. I think his last name was Cook, Wade Cook. He wrote, he wrote a book called like the Wall Street Money Machine, like super cheesy title. And it was all about like buying stocks on margin and selling covered calls against them and, and you know, earning like. 20% returns a month or something. It was something ridiculous, but mm -hmm. the book just kind of interested me and it got me interested in options as like, as a additional income source. And I think that was kind of like the gateway drug that opened my eyes to options. Um, so I kind of always tinkered with them a little bit, uh, but it wasn't until um, it was around 2003 ish, 2004, a friend of mine, one of the traders that I worked with in my office um, had started getting into options and he started talking to me about the strategies he was doing. And, and, I, and the big thing that really caught my attention was I loved that he was putting on these trades that were called iron condors, where you basically, uh, it's a delta neutral trade, meaning, you know, as long as the, the stock doesn't have to go up or down, it can go sideways and you can make money. And I was like, I was like, my head exploded. Like what? what? I can make money if a stock does nothing. Tell me more. <laughs> And um, so I just love that idea of, of putting on credit spreads that paid me if the stock did nothing. Um, and that kind of opened the door for me. And I really got interested. And I think I opened my first account. I opened my first options account with Thinkorswim when they had just, they first launched. I think that was like 2003 when they launched Thinkorswim. I'm not exactly sure what year it was, but uh, I was one of their first customers. I know that. And um and I started off by doing iron condors and uh, calendar spreads, and and uh, you know that was fun and exciting, and uh, and then it just kind of grew from there. And 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 today, uh, the reason why I like options, I do still trade the occasional stock, and I still do trade some futures from time to time. I'm starting to dabble in cryptocurrencies like everybody else. Um, but uh, why I love options is that, uh, and I say this all the time, it's kind of cheeky, but it's true. Uh, 
options give us options. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's multiple ways to express a bullish bet or a bearish bet, or, or we can make money in a sideways market. So uh, I, I love that, and and I love that I can define my risk, and that that's a really big thing for me. Um, I love knowing that I could be dead wrong, you know. But if I have a defined risk trade on, I know what my max loss is going in. If you know if the shit hits the fan and the worst case scenario plays out, I know what my loss is, and I can you know accept that upfront. And and that's a big thing why I like options. Is your framework now a a delta neutral sort of portfolio? Is that what you strive to achieve, or no? No, no, okay. I don't do that anymore. Um, and and nothing against it. I know plenty of people that make their bread and butter basically being delta neutral selling options. I mean, my friends over at Tasty Works, Tom Sosnoff and the whole team, I know everybody over there. I love what they do. Um, I think they do a great, they provide a great service for options traders, teaching people how to trade. And, and I love what they do. Uh, and I don't have any problem with their strategies, but uh, I tend to, uh, I do put on delta neutral trades for sure, but it's not my primary motive. Uh uh, these days, especially with my work with all-star charts, we definitely put on a lot of directional trades uh, with with options. And and in a, in a perfect world, I would have a balanced portfolio of a bunch of long biased positions and then a bunch of uh, short biased positions. Uh, and we might be starting to get to a market environment where that makes sense. But at least for the last couple of years, I mean, nine out of 10 trades we put on have been uh, bullish just because those are the setups that have been presenting themselves. Yeah, makes total sense. Have that tilt to what the market is actually kind of doing. Um, yeah. So do you think someone can be a profitable options trader if they don't have an underlying strategy working? Like if they can't trade stock, if they don't have something that they can trade stocks profitably, repeatably, can they, can they, can they make it in options or do they have to solve that first? That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> if they... If they want to make money with options being a directional player, meaning like, you know, they're bullish, they want to get long and they're bearish, they want to get short, and they're finding it hard to do it in stocks, I don't think they're going to find any success in options either because you, there's more things to consider. You can't just be right on the direction with options. You have to get the timing right. Uh, you have to get the strike selection right. You got to get uh, the volatility right. There's, there's more layers. There's more things that can go wrong. Um, so if you're... If that's what you want to do, you want to be a directional player, but you're not already making money in stocks or futures, uh, you, the odds are strongly stacked against you. On the flip side, if you're struggling as a trader who can't make money with directional bets, you might find it to be pretty interesting and it might work for you to look into delta neutral option strategy trades. And, and with delta neutral trades, uh, you know, it's a lot of things you can do. You could be as aggressive or as risk averse as you'd like. Um, but I think, uh, for someone who's struggling, um, in trading and wants to try options, I think there are some really good low risk Delta neutral strategies that you could experiment with. Um, they can help you build your confidence, make a little bit of money. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy. It's definitely not easy and you could definitely lose money. Um, but, uh, it might work best with, uh, with the way your mind works. And, and Evan, that's a big thing too, about, trading and that's not, and this is not just about options it's about any kind of trading is that you won't be successful in trading until you can figure out what works with your temperament what works with your idea of what you find interesting 
Okay. You, you have to find that strategy that you can jive with. Uh, you know, you might identify a strategy that makes money, but it requires you to, you know, do a hundred trades a day and you only have an hour a day to work with. That's just not going to work for you. Even though it's a, a winning strategy, you're not going to have the time or the energy or the inclination to do it. So that's not going to work for you. You see, so you have to find the strategy that aligns with who you are, how you think about risk, what your time commitments are, what your constraints are, things like that. Um, so I've, don't know how I got off on that tangent, but, but that's a very important thing for traders to know. It's it's a super important thing. I mean, it's back to what you said earlier. It's the psych- psychological piece that is what we all have to come to terms with. And it's what's going on inside of our brains. The technical side, frankly, isn't that hard uh, or, you know, it doesn't have to be that hard, uh, but it's, it's all the self-sabotage ways that a trader can sort of, you know, lose control or, or not follow through on a simple system. So, yeah, I think that makes sense, uh, you know, from what you say in terms of if, if you know, unsu- unsuccessful directionally, it's probably going to be unsuccessful directionally options, but they might have more success on the delta neutral side. And just to frame that out, delta neutral. So what we're talking about here is basically not taking a stance or a directional stance on the market. It is trying to construct a portfolio that is balanced of longs and shorts or long and short kind of call option bets uh, to balance balance out a portfolio. I went through a phase where I went hardcore tasty trade style, you know, consuming all the content and going down that path. And I think it was a conflicting, you know, psychological internal thing with me that I couldn't end up fully adopting it. But I also just wonder, I think I feel like a delta neutral, like trying to really do that, you need a very large account size. You need to really give it plenty. Maybe not. Maybe maybe I'm overthinking it, but the amount of capital to tie up in some of these positions where, you know, an iron condor might only net you, I don't know, whatever, whatever it was, it just seemed like it was difficult to do without a very large account size. Just my two cents. I, I don't know well, if that's... I mean, you're partially right. It, depends, it depends on the kind of returns you want to make, right? Yeah. Like if you want to, if you're, if you're selling iron condors, let's say in the S and P or the SPX and you want to make, I don't know, two grand a month. Well, you probably want to have at least 50 grand in your account to do that. Um, but you know, if, if your goals are smaller or more modest, you can certainly, certainly do it with less money. Uh, but it, it, it depends on what type of strategies you are and how aggressive you're trying to be. Um, I, I know, I know a lot of guys, I, I have meetup groups here in Colorado that finally we're going to start getting going again next month. We've been off for a year because of the pandemic, but, nice. um, I've been running a, a meetup group for about eight years here, uh, for traders. And, uh, there's a few guys in, in, and a girl, uh, who come to my, my group and they, they're Delta neutral, uh, credit spread traders, uh, t- you know, in the tasty trade kind of vein. And, and they, they bring in two to three percent a month, and I mean they're trading with bigger money, of course. But the, the, all they're trying to do is make two, three, four percent a month, and they're like, "Hey, this beats the hell out of a savings account," and yeah. you know they're doing well with that, and they continue to do well with that. Are there times where you only want to be a net seller of options in the market because IV is so high, or is it, are you always finding opportunities where you might be buying some options, selling others? Or do you go through moments where it's one or the other in kind of your own framework or style? That's a good question. And I treat every trade on a case-by-case basis. So my process is these days is 
first I come up with a thesis of whether I'm bullish or bearish on an opportunity or neutral. But let's just keep it simple. Say I'm, I'm looking at a stock and I'm bullish on it. Okay. So that's the first decision. I'm bullish. I want to be long. The mm-hmm. next decision I make is I want to look at where the volatility is in that name. I'm not I'm not concerned so much about the overall market. I'm just concerned about that particular name. So let's say let's say it's Apple, right? I don't care what's going on in the overall market. I want to see what the implied volatility in the Apple options is. And the way I do it is I look at the option the implied volatility, how it's trended over the past 6 to 12 months. And for me, Generally, I want to be a net buyer of options if the implied volatility is in the lower third of its uh, of its yearly or six to twelve month range. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, um, and if we're in the upper two thirds of uh, of the yearly range, then I generally want to be a net seller of premium. So, for example, if I'm bullish on Apple, and let's say the implied volatility is in the lower third, then I'd probably look to just buy straight calls to express my bullish position. Uh, maybe a bull call spread. Uh, I use a lot sometimes on the more expensive stocks just to lower my cost. Mm-hmm. Um, if the volatility is in the upper two thirds and I want to be long Apple, well, in that case, I might I might sell a, a, a bull put spread where I'm selling a, an at the money put and protecting it with a further out of the money put. Um, it's got very it's got limited. Uh, gain potential, but the odds are stacked in my favor that way. So, I mean, these are just examples, but but I always try to figure out where the implied volatility is before I select a strategy that I want to trade because I want to put a strategy on that will benefit or has the odds in its favor to benefit based on where volatility is. Because um, I might be talking, you know, above some people's pay grades here when I riff on options volatility. And I understand that it's complicated to some people and it's complicated to me sometimes too. But generally speaking, implied volatility mean reverts. And what I mean by that is, is when volatility spikes, more often than not, that spike is temporary and it will then come back down. And, and, And that makes sense, right? I mean, if something happens, it spooks the market. People get scared about something. Maybe uh, there was a bad earnings event or there was a bad product release or the CFO quit or something, right? Something that introduces all kinds of uncertainty that gets people scared. Well, when that happens, investors are going to look to hedge their positions in the options market. They're gonna, so they're going to bid up the cost of puts and calls uh, because you're going to have uh, the people who are scared of the stock's going to sell off are going to be buying puts uh, as insurance. And the people that are uh, taking opportunistic speculative bets are going to start bidding up the price of calls. Uh, and that's going to happen. But eventually, what eventually whatever that news was that freaked everybody out, either that, res- that news event, whatever that was, resolves itself or that just becomes the new normal now going forward and people just kind of accept that risk and they, they've they already hedged themselves in any way that they need to. And there's no further need for people to take aggressive bets. Uh, and so the premiums and the options will start to deflate again. And that's what makes implied volatility um, get you know go lower. Uh, so when implied volatility is high in, sto- in a stock or an index, I tend to want to be a seller because more often than not, that volatility is going to uh, shrink and that's going to benefit my position. Doesn't mean it guarantees me a winner, but it's definitely putting the odds in my favor. And 
And any trader who's been in this game for any length of time knows that if you have an edge, even if it's a slight 5149 edge, uh, you want to execute against that edge as often as possible because the more often you execute against that edge, the more likely you are to realize that edge. And and fading volatility is one of those edges that I, I like to pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, st- stacking the odds however we can and as often as we can is you know, the name of the game, frankly, right? So it, it is adding all those little edges together. So when you look back, and now obviously we have the benefit of hindsight, but March 2020, we get the VIX to, I mean, it was the highest ever, right? Or, or pretty I much so. 80. Uh, I think it was pretty close or at the new highs at 80. Um, option sellers, obviously in hindsight, are drooling over the premium that was baked in at an 80 VIX. But in the moment, they were probably drooling over it at a 40 VIX, at a 50 VIX, at a 60 VIX, at a 70 VIX, at it, right? So so it was a juicy kind of, oh, let's sell premium. I'm, I'm assuming I, I, it's not my trade, so I didn't put it on. But how do you, I mean, it's risk management, right? But how do you deal with something like that? Because you're drooling over 100% IV rank, but then it can keep going, right? So like, what is what are some of the practices to yeah, sort of I mean, mitigate that's that? That's tricky. I mean, you, you got to be careful what you wish for, right? I mean, option in hindsight, we all wish we could look at that chart and say, oh, I should have definitely sold premium at that right. high level. But the reality is, is that when the volatility is priced that high, people are scared. Markets are volatile and it, it takes balls of steel to step into that market and sell because uh, you know, VIX at 30 when on the, on its way up, VIX at 30 seemed really high. We hadn't had, we hadn't been at 30 in a long time. Well, mm-hmm. guess what? It went to 40. Oh, we got to sell it now. Then it went to 50. Then it went to 60. Then, it, I mean, it, it was, you know, that can be a very, very scary moment. Um, and so, um, you got to be careful what you wish for, uh, selling, uh, premium, there are ways you can protect yourself, though. You could, uh, you know, you could do defined risk spreads where you, you know, you sell an out of the money call and an out of the money put if you're being delta neutral, but purchase further out of the money calls and puts to at least define your risk in a situation where we have a market collapse like we had in March of 2020. Um, I know people on both sides of the fence, so people who did really well uh, selling premium during that time. I also know people who got burned pretty badly. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's when you're playing with fire, you're occasionally going to get burned. That's, that's what happens. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is always a trade-off. I think the define risk trades are, are always the, you know, the, the, certainly the safer way to go, or to, you can sleep easy at night when you do those types of trades, but it's always so seductive to just sell, you know, naked calls, naked puts, cause you just get to collect all that premium. You don't have to buy the insurance with, you know, a skew that you don't have to pay up for or something. So yeah, there's always a trade-off. And and I think, like you said, options give you options. And um, this is this is the world we get to live in. So I'm curious from your perspective, if we let's take a trader that is a profitable, let's call them a profitable swing trader, and they have a strategy directionally based that is working, it's repeatable, let's assume it will continue to work. Only stocks is what they trade, but they're interested in trying to use options in that directional strategy to either enhance returns or just use less capital. What is like is there a is there a checkbox that they should kind of go down to just sort of how do they think about, you know, 
migrating this profitable directional strategy to maybe using some options at times? Is there is there some tips that you can give this this type of scenario? Sure. Well, well you hit it on the head there about um, capital efficiency. Um, that's a big thing. Uh, you know, if if you're Let's just keep it simple. Let's say you're a long only trader who likes to swing trade from the long side with stocks. Um, if you wanted to do that with options, you could, and it would require less capital. And that can mean one of two things to you. That can mean I'm just using less capital and having less money at risk, or it means I could get into more plays and be even more aggressive. Uh, I'm not saying one is better than the other, but there are pros and cons to both approaches. Um, but there are more things to consider um, when you want to make the leap from being a long-only stock trader to a, let's say, a long-only options trader. Um, first of all, every stock that you trade might not have options. Um, obviously, if you're trading the big names that everybody knows, you know, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Microsofts, the Apples, you know, of course, they have options and they're all very liquid, no problem. Uh, but there are a lot of stocks that have had some really big moves lately that people want to trade, but the options market for them either doesn't exist, they don't have options, or there are options, but they're very thinly traded. Um, so the bid-ask spreads are very wide. Uh, there's not a whole lot of volume. Uh, so it's tricky to get in and get fair prices and get fair fills, and it's even trickier to get out when you really want to get out. Uh, they'll always let you in when you want when you want to get in, but getting out's an another story. Um, so there are things to consider. It's not an easy just make the leap uh, to doing that. And you also have to factor in the things that are unique to options, right? You got to factor in the time. Like, okay, um, I think I think the stock's going to go from eighty bucks to a hundred bucks, but with options, you got to figure out well. How soon is that going to happen? Is that going to happen next week? Is that going to happen next month? Um, that's a very important factor in selecting what you know expiration that you choose. Uh, what strike do you choose? Do I buy the the at the money eighty call? Do I buy the out of the money one hundred call? Um, and that's going to be determined on you know how, you know what kind of leverage you want when you're right and and how much you want it to cost you when you're wrong. Uh, so there's a lot of factors that need to that you need to consider. It's not an easy jump, um, but you can swing trade with options, and I love swing trading with options, uh, and I love it because, and I've talked about it before. I love being able to define my risk. I mean, one of the most important things for me is. I don't like to risk more than one percent of my capital in any one trade. Sometimes they'll go as high as two, uh, but two is my absolute minimum. And so when I put an options trade on on a stock, let's say, let's just keep it simple. Let's say it's a stock that's making all-time highs and the volatility is low, and I just want to buy a straight call. Well, I can size my position. I could buy the right amount of contracts, knowing that uh, the premium I pay equals one percent of my account, and if the stock tanks and goes to zero or just doesn't work out, it doesn't move fast enough for me, at least I know how much I'm going to lose when I'm wrong. And I can accept that. And then I don't need to babysit the position. I don't need to watch every tick and, and you know make sure my stop loss order is working or anything like that. I've already got my, my loss baked in and I know what it's going to be, worst case scenario. Uh, so it makes my life a lot easier. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of swing trading uh, with options and I think more people should do it. Um, for many of the reasons I've laid out, but it's, but it's, you know, there are some things you need to think about and, and, and manage for. Yeah. There's lots of good points there. I mean, the capital efficiency and the, and the risk definition I think is so important. And 
the, 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 the struggle I always have with it is it's, uh, so I love to, I don't, you know, I, I think backtesting has a tremendous amount of limitations and, and there are, you know, it's not the Holy grail, but I, I love to still backtest and kind of see what strategies looked like in the past. And it's very difficult to get options data and to backtest trading systems because you have all those different strikes and timeframes and bid and ask and all that stuff. So it is always tough for me that I'm looking at my systems and I'm like, I kind of have to do this by hand or I have to like, you know, just take a separate account and do it with a small amount and just test the waters with it. Cause there's not another good way that I know of to like, you know, really get that change. Um, yeah. Backtesting with options is, uh, is a challenging endeavor because uh, I mean, unless you're trading the most liquid options markets, like let's say SPY right. uh, or IWM or, or QQQ that have really tight bid ask spreads, it's really hard to model the exact fills you'll get um, due to the bid ask spreads. I mean, I mean, just think about it. If you're trading options that are, you know, bid, 50 cents offered 60 cents doesn't seem like a really big bid ask spread, but 60 cents is 10 cents higher or 10%, no, 20% higher than 50 cents, right? That's going to really affect your numbers. So it's, yeah, uh, I've I've been frustrated by that too, uh, because I do like backtesting when it comes to stock trading uh, strategies and futures trading strategies, but I haven't found a good way to do it with options. If somebody knows a good way, let us know. We'd love to take a look. Yeah, hundred percent. Leave a comment. I would love to know. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, even even I mean, stock market data, uh, which is a whole other tangent that drives me sort of nuts. I know we're you know we're supposedly democratizing you know data and it's it's accessible for everyone, but I mean, data itself, even even for just stocks, just for equities, open, high, low, close. I mean, there are so many like misprints and and issues with data. And and so when I think about options, I'm like, oh my god, this is hopeless. I can't even get you know, I can't even get normal uh, equity data to to come through. But a whole other story. Um, so when we uh, you know think about some of the events that happened earlier, actually earlier this year, it seems like forever ago with like the GME, like GameStop and, and AMC. It was funny to me to, to, to hear the word gamma squeeze used so much. And just even by like traditional media and like trying to explain, you know, the, the, the Reddit and, and what's going on and everybody's buying call options and it's this gamma squeeze. I mean, have markets changed at all in that, in that respect? Like, are, are we going to see more things like this due to again kind of the socialization of 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 trading and and the easy access to call options and all this stuff or have we always just had this and it's just another you know high profile moment type of thing well um it's happened before and it'll happen again for sure um i we i think what we saw earlier this year was a little bit unique uh owing to network effects of social media you know the reddit twitter world um uh but but the gamma squeeze that you're talking about for for people who don't know what that means it's it's basically uh a lot of retail investors were buying out of the money call options because they're they're theoretically cheap or they're you know in absolute terms, they're cheap. Um, and when a lot of people are buying out of the money calls, uh, they're buying them from market makers who are on the other side of the trade who are short those calls. And the only way they can hedge themselves, which is what market makers do, they have to hedge themselves. That's how they stay in business. Uh, they hedge themselves by 
either buying the stock, which is typically what they do, or buying more calls at different strikes or different expirations to hedge themselves. And it just has a kind of a follow-on effect where it just kind of sp- starts to spiral out of control. And, and we certainly saw that in GameStop. I mean, GameStop is a uh, classic textbook example of a gamma squeeze, uh, but we saw that in a lot of stocks. And we it was definitely noticeable um, earlier in the year when you looked at some of the momentum names of stocks, uh, some of the high flyers, if you looked at the options chains, uh, you would find that the out-of-the-money calls were, sig- were priced significantly higher than a correspondingly far away put in the other direction. So in, in a normal market, when things are normal, let's say a stock is trading at 100 bucks, okay? If you look at the options chain of a stock trading at 100 bucks, if you look at, say, the 90 strike put, which is 10 bucks away, and the 110 strike call, which is 10 points away, that 90 put will usually cost more money than the 110 call, even though they're the same distance away. Why? Because people are people are, want to protect their investments and they're willing to pay f- for insurance. And that's what a put offers a holder of long stock. It's insurance. People pay up for insurance. So under normal market conditions, you'll usually see a bigger bid in puts than you do in calls. But this year, earlier in the year, we saw an unusual situation um, where it was happening in a lot of names where the, where the out-of-the-money calls were significantly priced higher than correspondingly for uh, distanced away puts. Uh, that, was, that was unusual. I mean, it, it happens and it's always happened, but to see that happen across so many names uh, in a short period of time was definitely, uh, definitely uh, eye-raising. Um, and yeah. GameStop again being the, the like the poster child for that situation, um, but uh, yeah, I mean it's one of those like like many games on Wall Street, they're as old as the hills. They just kind of take different forms from year to year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very fascinating to watch the options chain of GameStop in January and February, and, and I, I I definitely have. You know, experience. I don't consider myself uh, an options pro by any stretch, but I just remember scratching my head because I, you know, I was looking at GameStop. You know, the stock was trading at like a hundred bucks, and then I'm looking at like 150 call options, and their delta was like 75 or something. And I'm like, yeah. and I'm just like scratching my head because like I thought delta, you know, like approximated the the in the money chance that that stock could trade in the money. Right. So right. it's like, okay, it's 50 points out. Like, am I stupid for not being long this right now? Cause like, should I just buy shares if, if the market's implying that this thing has a 75% chance of rallying, you know, 50%, like it was so bizarre. And, um, yeah, kudos to, I mean, it was probably a pain trade on both sides, but kudos to the people that could cash in on that. Um, hopefully it could cash out before everything unraveled. So, yeah, uh, very interesting moment in time for sure. So we're going to wind down here and I know you like to read. So do you have any book recommendations and and I'll, I love books outside of markets, but that you think could help traders? Uh, so any non-trading related books that you think would be helpful or influential or anything that kind of helped you on your path as a trader? Well, uh, guilty as charged, I am a, a library nerd. Uh, I have a library card that I wear out. One of the things I miss about not living in Chicago anymore, uh, I used to be a member of the Chicago Board of Trade, and that was where my office was. And three buildings down was the Chicago, the downtown Chicago Public Library. 
And mm. that library had the greatest collection of trading books, you know, ever assembled as far as I know. I mean, there might be others maybe in awesome. New York that are bigger, but I mean, every trading book, every trading psychology book, anything you could think of, they had multiple copies of. And so uh, I spent a lot of time in the downtown Chicago public libraries. I love to read. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Um, but um, I've read all the trading books or most of them. Um, and I've enjoyed many of them and I'm not going to rehash uh, those names everybody has heard, like yep. reminiscences of a stock operator and how to make money in stocks and uh, Edwards and McGee, like all these stocks everybody talks about, all these books everybody talks about. They're all great. Um, but there are so many books outside of the world of trading that um, I think get you in the better, in the right frame of mind, which is really what it's all about. We talked at the top of this call, Evan, about how trading really is easy. Right. Yep. I mean, when you, get, when you get down to it, it's, you know, you know, when you're supposed to buy, you know, when you're supposed to sell uh, the mechanics aren't that hard. You could, you know, you could learn that stuff at a weekend seminar. Uh, it's 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 the mental game in your head that is really where it, it, you figure it out. Um, a book that I've I mean, there's so many books I could recommend a book that I've recently read and I'm rereading it again for the second time. I loved it so much uh, is the Almanac from Naval Ravikant. Oh yeah. Um, I, I might be mispronouncing his name, uh, but venture capital guy, he started uh, angel angel list. Mm -hmm. uh, his Twitter handles at Naval. Uh, many people know who he is already. I'm not telling you something you don't know, but he, he's got a book out. Well, I don't even think he wrote it. I think it was uh, compiled by a friend of his. It was kind of like a book of all his wisdoms that he's shared. And man, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's not about trading at all. But it's so profound and there's so many aha moments and light bulb moments that have gone off for me. And, and it's been a pleasure to read. And it's just so uh, inspiring. Um, so that's a new book that just uh, just came out recently. And I highly recommend you pick that up. Um, Good one. About getting your mind right. Um, I, I love some of the classic um, books about mindset. Um What's the one uh, that I just read again for like the fifth time? Um, oh, I'm I'm gonna forget. I forgot now. By Schwartz, the guy that last name is Schwartz. It's an old book from the fifties. Oh, the the magic of thinking big. I believe it's called. Oh yeah, yep. I I love that book. It's yep. just like it's common sense. Um, no bullshit wisdom from the fifties. I think is when it was written. Um, it's a little bit dated in parts, but I mean, it's just such an inspiring book and, and kind of gets your mind right and gets you, gets you focused about, Hey, you know, things aren't so bad. And, you know, a lot of that too, as traders, and maybe I'm guilty of this more than others, but, um, as traders, when things aren't going well and things, there's always things to be upset about as a trader, even when you're making money. Right. That's that's the really hard thing about this business is that even when you're making money, you could still be pissed off about it because you'd be like, oh, I left so much money on the table. Uh, I made 10 grand on this trade, but I could have made 25 if I just held another day. Like yep. there's always those if, ands and buts. And so anything that you could read that, that gets you to focus on being happy and then and, and uh, you know, being grateful um, um, really is helpful. I mean, and, and that's, that's been a struggle of mine throughout my career. I, I don't feel like I've been grateful enough uh, for the opportunities I've had. And, and uh, when things get hard, I, if I just take a moment to sit back and say, Hey, you know, 
a lot of good has happened here. Just because I'm having a rough time this week or this month doesn't mean, you know, this has all been for naught. Um, so, you know, yeah. you know, who's a really, this is kind of off the radar for people. Um, he, uh, I don't know, think he's active on Twitter as much as he used to be, but there's a guy named Darren Donnelly. Uh, he used to tweet as Darvis Trader. Oh yeah. Yep. And so for people might be familiar with the Darvis book. He wrote a book uh, in the sixties called how I made 2 million in the stock market, a terrible name for a book, but a wonderful book. One of my favorite trading books, actually. He basically talks about, um, he uses sports as his vehicle. Uh, these are fictional stories, but he uses sports as his vehicle to basically give you life lessons, lessons about grit, lessons about perseverance, lessons about gratitude, lessons about, uh, Persistence, um, just really, really great books. He calls it uh, "Sports for the Soul." Is kind of what his series is nice. called. But if you like sports and you like uplifting uh, stories and and and, op- and you know being optimistic and getting your mind right, these books are fantastic. They're easy reads. You can read each book, and you know if you sit down and really get into it, you can knock it out in a weekend. Each book. Um, I've gifted the entire series of these books to many of my friends, uh, and I continue to gift them to people because I just think they're great books. I mean, yes, it's they're tilted towards sports fans. If you're not a sports fan, you might not like them as much, but I'm a huge sports fan. So anyone who likes sports, you'll love these books. Awesome. Shout yeah, out to you, Darren list. Donnelly, if you see this. <laughs> that's awesome. I was not familiar, so I will definitely check it out. So last question, Sean, what does successful trading look like to you now? You've done a lot. You've had a lot of different jobs in the space. You've traded for over 20 years, all different styles. What does it mean to you now to be a successful trader? Well, to me, the way I define my success in trading is if I can earn money without taking a whole lot of heat to do so, and without having to babysit and manage my positions, uh, you know, on a minute to minute or hour to hour basis, to me, that is success. If I could put trades on that just kind of do their thing and don't stress me out, um, that's stress. I mean, that, that's success to me. I mean, it's a low bar, I think. Um, you know, I, I mentioned it before. I'm not trying to make a living off of my trading. I would love to be make a living as a trader. Believe me. But I have proven to myself time and time again that that's that level of stress I don't deal well with. I need to have other sources of income. I mean, if there's any great secret, if there's one great secret to successful trading, Evan, it's this. Find yourself some multiple streams of income. Yeah. If you've got multiple streams of income, your trading is going to be a hell of a lot easier and more likely it's going to be more profitable because you're you're going to be trading for the right reasons, not because, oh, shit, I need to make money this week or I, I can't make my car payment, yep. right? That's the stress you don't need, you don't want. It's very unproductive. So yeah, I mean, success to me is just not having those stresses. It's it's uh, it's having a trading style that works with my my workflow. I have you know a number of things that I'm working on throughout the day. I, I, I do research for all star charts as, we, as we've talked about. I work for trade ideas in a sales and education capacity. My day is pretty full. I can't sit here and babysit my positions throughout the day. That doesn't work for me. So. Uh, as long as I'm trading and, and my positions are doing what they're doing without me having to micromanage them, that's success to me. I love listening to you because I just I just not in agreement with everything you you, you say. And my yeah, I, every year that goes by, I want to sort of trade less and dial back a little bit. And not because I'm not you know competitive or, or still wanting to like 
play the game, so to speak. But I just, I, yeah, I, I want to sleep easy at night. I want a good night's rest. I don't want to worry about things. I don't want to stare at markets all day. Like I want to just automate as much as possible, make my life easy and yeah, go down that route. You know, when you said you want to trade less, that reminds me, uh, this was something I, I used to say a lot uh, over the last 10 years is because uh, you know, everybody was complaining about high frequency trading and how the robots are taking over the markets. And I used to tell everybody, look, the faster the markets get, the slower I want to trade. Mm, I can't yep. compete on speed. Um, there's no way I'm going to, as a human, there's no way I'm going to compete on speed. Even if I'm algorithmically trading, I'm not going to compete on speed against, you know, Goldman Sachs and the $8 billion of capital they've got bought, that they're putting behind their co-locating machines. I'm sure. not going to compete against that. So going slow, slow is sexy, Evan. Slow is sexy. I love it. That's such a good, good parting words right there. Awesome. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work? Stay on top of what you're up to, Sean. Probably the best place is just on Twitter. Chicago Sean is my handle. Um, I'm neither from Chicago nor live in Chicago anymore, but that's my handle. <laughs> um, I'm originally from Buffalo, New York, for those who don't know, but uh, but I lived in Chicago for 10 years. I was a member of the Chicago Board of Trade, and and that's where I was when Twitter was born, and that was the handle that, that made sense to me at the time. I couldn't get just Sean McLaughlin. That wasn't available. So Chicago Sean was the name I took, and I thought I'd live in Chicago for the rest of my life at the time. So um, that's why I still have the handle, but now I live in Colorado. Um, but the, the best place is probably Twitter, Chicago, Sean. Um, you can also find me at allstarcharts.com. You can also find me on my own blog that I occasionally write on at Chicago, tra- Chicago, Sean trades.com. Um, those are the best places to get me. Man, if you had a quarter for every time you had to explain your Twitter handle, you would be a very rich man, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. This was awesome. That's it, folks. All the notes and links from this episode can be found on the blog at thetraderisk.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, Evan. This was fun. Take care, buddy. Thanks, Sean. Awesome. Thank you for listening to Smarter Trading. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. For all of the show notes, links, and call-outs, head on over to thetraderisk.com forward slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Smarter Trading is hosted by me, Evan Medeiros, and produced by Ashton Alexander. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you in the next episode.